Hello and welcome to this week's podcast. We're talking about life sciences and I'm delighted to be joined by Alex Hamilton, who's a partner in the investment team at Syncona, which is a FTSE 250 life science venture capital business, and by Kaylee Haig, who's founder at Science Code and head of strategy at Source Bioscience. Now, Kaylee, interesting, uh, interesting times here in the UK. And from your experience being in the West Coast of the States, being in Boston, being across America, this whole area of life sciences has been absolutely booming over the last two years. How do you see the UK market shaping up? What's it doing well? What's it doing right? It's obviously, it has been to some extent holding on to the coattails a little bit of the US. But, but what are you seeing as the token American in the room today? Well, thanks for having me on the podcast, first of all. Great to be with you guys. It's quite interesting. I think it's been a really great time for life sciences because obviously with the pandemic, it's given us an opportunity to shine and put the focus on the sector, which it needed. But in terms of comparison to the US, we really can't compare it because we're a little bit behind on some of the stuff that we're doing. And I think the pandemic showcased A little that. bit behind or a lot behind? Maybe a lot. Maybe a lot. <laughs> yeah. And just for the benefit of everyone listening, tell us a little bit about what you do. What's your role that, that sort of, you've got this weird little micro universe that you, that you occupy between the worlds of real estate, science, innovation. It's an interesting world that I work in. So previously, my background's coming from the pharma side of things. And then I came over to the UK to do real estate for the life sciences and realized there was definitely a disconnect between the market between real estate and between the science and what actually was needed. So I founded a company called Science Code that essentially looks at the end-to-end solution of building a cluster or, as we love to say these days, ecosystem. So for me, it's been a really great opportunity to help some of the startups and the mid-sized companies find space where needed and help them grow, essentially. And then at Source Bioscience, I have the opportunity to work on the biopharma side of things and help some of those startup companies that don't necessarily can't take space, but maybe need to do a proof of concept and get further along so they can raise more funding. So a bit of a troubleshooter for that. So if this were a Netflix show, it would be million dollar life sciences real estate. Something right? like that. And then you'd, you'd, be, you'd, be, you'd be strutting around, shouting at your assistants and getting all the other preparations ready. And somebody getting me coffee, yeah. Right, so we'll, let's, we'll have to do the script of that. It sounds like a, an absolute mint show that we could, we could have. Uh, Alex, coming to you. So Syncona, there aren't that many. I mean, very, I mean, are there any other? I don't believe there are any other listed businesses in the UK that, that do what you do. Tell us a little bit about Syncona and some of the companies that it backs and, and some of your ethos and your investment strategy. Sure. So thanks very much for having me on the podcast. Syncona is a venture capital firm founded by the Wellcome Trust in 2012 with a specific mandate of building companies for the long term. And instead of pursuing the typical European VC approach of funding them through to early clinical data and then trying to sell them, we tried to build companies that have an attractive lead asset with a good commercial opportunity. They're capable of actually pursuing themselves. So funding through a pivotal trial, funding through a commercial launch, having a management team capable of running that launch and supporting that with a pipeline of further assets built around a coherent thesis, either a technology or an indication or a clinical setting. Mm. The way that we've pursued that is with essentially a permanent capital structure. So unlike a typical VC where you have a timed fund 
whereby you raise capital in year one, you deploy it in years two through four, and then you yeah. try to exit for the rest of the fund. Whenever we have an exit, that capital recycles to our balance sheet. So it's an evergreen fund. Evergreen fund, correct. Yeah, you know, that's for people listening that might work in real estate, that, that's the holy grail for real estate developers not having to put up and sell mm. after a few years. And I guess given the nature of science and the nature of many of the businesses that you back, clearly things change, right? Yep. Pandemics happen, other yep. things happen, hospitals close and you can't get energy trials, you can't get access to particular things that you might otherwise have done. And how does that play out with your investors? Because you know, some people would say, oh, I think it's a bit risky. It's a bit bit unpredictable. How do I know how this is going to perform? How, how, do, how, yeah, do, you, how so, do you square that circle? Yeah, so Sincona has a, a bit of an interesting funding history. As I mentioned, we were founded by the Wellcome Trust. And, and so they set up that evergreen structure in the first place. It was something that they explicitly wanted to do. Yeah. That's pretty unusual for what would otherwise be a limited partner. They were willing to be tied into it for the long term. In 2016, we had the opportunity to go public by a reverse merger. That provided us with about a further £500 million of capital. Mm. That was with a company called Backit, Battle Against Cancer Investment Trust, which was basically invested in various funds and was using some of the proceeds to finance charitable contributions to the healthcare sector, in particular cancer research. And so there was sort of an alignment in, in terms of philosophy about long-term planning between the existing Backit shareholder base and the Wellcome Trust. And so when we saw this opportunity to reverse merge, combine the balance sheets effectively and use the proceeds of that portfolio to subsidize the existing Sincona portfolio, that was sort of too good an opportunity to pass up. Mm. I think it depended heavily upon the existing shareholders of Backit understanding what we were about and what we were trying to do. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that was driven by the relationships that the Backit management team had with their existing shareholders. Mm. Let's talk about scale-ups and bring Kaylee back in in a second. But the question I wanted to ask on that point was how you go about identifying what success looks like. Because there's an incredible, almost infinite diversity of, of different businesses out there solving particular problems and challenges and, and healthcare issues. How does Syncona define what it does or doesn't invest in? And when you do, how the heck do you go in and, and kick the tires of a business plan about a product when so many plates around regulation and just the science itself are having to spin? So, so success is actually quite easy for us to define. The problem is finding it and creating it. So I would define success pretty simply. It's a transformationally efficacious product in a commercially attractive market with an unmet medical need. That's pretty easy to define, right? But it you sounds can simple say, when you say it like that. Yeah, when someone is sick and there's nothing for them. Might sound life science vehicle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there's, somebody is sick, there's nothing that can help them. Can you find a product for them? Yes. Can you get paid for it? Yes. Okay, that looks pretty attractive, right? Mm. The issue is identifying those opportunities and then matching a technology to it and then running the business for the 10 years that it's going to take you to get there. Those are the challenges. But in terms of finding it, most of what we do is university spin-out work. So it's pretty rare that somebody actually comes to us with an existing business and an existing plan, and we fund the plan and then say, okay, go off and do that, and we'll speak to you in six months. Yeah. That's not how it works. We negotiate the license with the university. We do the documentation to found the business. We recruit the management team. We sit on the board. Sometimes we take operational roles in these companies for the first six months to get them off the ground. It's that sort of level. And 
some of our companies that we founded six or seven years ago, we still work with them day to day. Amazing. Um, so it's a very intensive model. Yeah, yeah. Kaylee Haig, one of those companies, I mean, you, you know, Autolus, uh, which, is, which is one of their companies. Tell us about what you see as being some of the barriers that Sincona's portfolio businesses face. How are they getting on? The, these, I mean, these are companies that, that you advise, right? Yes. So I think some of the barriers and just in relation to actual real estate is finding space in the right location and not paying like an arm and leg for it. I think there needs to be more funding that goes towards the pre-seed to series A types of companies that are coming out and especially more direction and more information on what to do when they spin out, not just on real estate, but also on different business solutions when they're coming out as well. So I'm sure you deal with that quite a bit, but we need to see more support there. And support from who? From from government, from investors, from from Alex and, and Sincona guys or, or other institutional investors? Where from? Where, what investment from who? I mean, we would love to see it from the government, but let's be realistic on that one. That might take a bit of time. So I don't know. The government in the UK has been shaking the magic money tree pretty hard. Last year, <laughs> we've been giving money out to all sorts of people. We're giving it out to HEV drivers next. You know, Christmas is coming, Kaylee, and people are going to want their turkeys. But but no, but in, in all seriousness, what, I, I mean, would you therefore say that the government could look at funding incubator spaces that, that could help those sorts of early stage companies you describe? I wouldn't necessarily say incubator spaces because I feel like there's quite a bit of that. I would say the next level, the grow on spaces when we're looking from like 3,000 to 7,000, that little sweet spot, or even 7 to 12, where they're growing into that mid-sized company, growing up a little bit, where they're going from scaling up from maybe 30 to 60 people. So having more... I think more education around that for the companies coming out around the property sector and actually having them prepare six months to a year in advance as part of their you know overall strategy is important. But from the government, it would be interesting to see more money focused there and less necessarily on the exact incubators. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, and Alex, from your perspective, with the different businesses that you invest in, what happened some of their challenges? I mean, clearly there's a there's a whole heap of regulatory hurdles that they have to jump through, but finding space, hiring people are gonna be two of the big yeah. ones. Those so those were the two that I would go to as, as sort of the, the key elements. I think on the space front, you know, it's easy to sponsor some research in a lab and have a little bit of a virtual team setting things up in the first few months. It's when you get to the sort of twelve month stage where you're at around 20 people within the business and suddenly you're, you're thinking about having you know, a further 40 people by the end of the year and then another 40 people at the end of that so that by the mm. time that you're in the clinic, you're at sort of 100 people. And at that point, you might be spending £5 million a month to run that sort of business and you need space that can host 100 people in it and has lab space and has offices. And so I, I think that becomes quite difficult to identify those spaces. I think we do quite well in terms of funding small startup space. What we lack are these really more substantially sized buildings and and specialist lab office combinations Mm. that can serve that function. And I mean, I suppose some people would say, well, you've got loads of money, Sincona, why don't you go and build one yourself? Well, so this is, we've thought about this. We've thought about that element of it. We've also thought about our own manufacturing facilities and things like that. And these are things that are sort of constantly churning over in our head. The issue becomes 
let's say you build five suites, right? And then you found a company and you put that company into one of those suites. You've still got four empty suites. So now what do you do? Because you, you're still paying all the property costs on the remaining four suites. Mm. And so in that situation, really the only way to make sure that you're covering off the cost base is to lease the suites out to somebody else. Mm. But if you do that, then you've lost your strategic advantage of owning the place in the first place, and you're actually just a property developer. Those could be some companies that you eventually invest in that you could put in there and you could sublet it for a shorter amount of time in order for you to... There's flexibility around that model. I think securing a spot in the right location is so essential for you guys. Yeah. Even if it's subletting some of those spaces. I mean, there's such a huge market for it. I, mean, I, should, I should say that most of what we do, you know, the vast bulk of what we do is companies that we've created ourselves yeah. rather than coming into Series B, Series C rounds or later. Yeah. And with those companies that you have, Alex, so where are they currently based? You've got a few companies at White City, companies like Autolus, Quell, based at White City, mm -hmm. which is the, the Stanhope yep. scheme. Others you've got in Stevenage. And, and how involved do you get as an investor? Are you involved in, I mean, clearly you, you, you probably sign off major, major decisions that are made mm -hmm. perhaps, but, but you're a board member of these, these companies, but would you be involved in locating offices and, and finding yeah, labs? Yeah, very much so. So it, it varies from company to company. Yeah. And it varies over time as well. So as a company gets more mature, we're less involved in the day-to-day -day element. But typically for a UK-founded business, we would be the ones deciding where to build it. Yeah. Um, so some of my colleagues were involved in setting up PureSpring recently, which is our AV gene therapy company for kidney disorders. You know, my colleague, Alice Renard and Dom Schmidt, they are observer and director on the board. And essentially, they went around and looked at all the facilities that they could potentially fit out for this company. And they yeah. settled on Rolling Stock Yard in King's Cross. Yeah. And what was the rationale for that? I guess, presumably, it's proximity to all of the things that King's Cross is placed Yeah, to. exactly. It's a very good location for life sciences because you're in a community that sort of stretches across North London of Royal Free Hospital, University College Hospital, yeah. and the associated research institutes like the Crick. You're on a train line out to Cambridge, well. yeah. out to Stevenage. You're not terribly far from, you know, three international airports, including two transatlantic ones. So it's, in terms of connectivity, it's a really good site. It's also a nice place to be. People like it's being got around the Tom Dixon shop highlights. where you can buy really, really lovely, expensive whiskey glasses. <laughs> <laughs> but, but Kaylee, I mean, just coming back to, to seriousness for a second, talking about this focus on clustering and on being in these central locations, you, you know, your team King's Cross, aren't you really in that respect? And that you, you believe there aren't that many places where this stuff could be based. What's your rationale there if that is something you agree with? You know, that's something that is given to me from the market. That's just market information so that I get feedback. what do you mean feedback. from the market? Just define My that clients means. from... For who? For which, which are these, these scale-up startups? Are these property companies? Who, who is it telling you this? I mean, if we're looking just on the life science side, that's from scale-ups all the way to pharma. Everybody's yeah. looking to be in King's Cross. Whether that's just taking a footprint as an office space or if you're lucky enough to get a lab. From a developer point of view, from the REIT side and from the pension funds, they're all looking at King's Cross too as well. In yeah. fact, some of my companies aren't even bothering to go in the UK. They're going to Paris and hovering and waiting for King's Cross. And they're going to Paris, why? St. Do Pancras, presumably. Yeah. Right? You can, <laughs> you can commute straight in. It takes two hours, less than. 
But I'm interested in this point on clustering because this concept of an ecosystem is something that that people in the science community talk a lot about. It's it's a phrase now that the real estate guys have been adopting over the last years place making ecosystems these these are the catchphrases the buzzwords but i'm interested kaylee from your sort of scientific and your real estate perspectives what that means what is it about king's cross and is that potentially a barrier if if king's cross is getting full up already does that then prohibit the growth of the UK's life sciences sector? Well, I don't think King's Cross is full up. It, in fact, doesn't have enough property that's coming up in the right timeframes to be actually developed. So that's a huge problem in itself. I think, as you mentioned, all of the great, wonderful institutions that are around that. We also have the Alan Turing Institute. We also have Elbic, which is one of the best incubators in Europe, I would just say. Plug for Elbic there um, on that. But it's where everybody wants to be. It's almost like a FOMO effect if you're missing out, if you're not in King's Cross. And it's done through the science community almost underground in a sort of sense that like, oh, those my mates are there. I got to go there. And Alex, is that is that consistent with, with your, is it consistent with your mates and some of your investment businesses and your partners, your contacts? Is, is that, are they I, saying the same thing? Because you've know, got businesses out in Stevenage as well, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know if it's as specific to King's Cross, but certainly people want to be living in and working in areas that have a certain energy around them. And some of them, you know, some so of them what's have wrong in Manchester? Manchester's it, but... got some great universities. Manchester would say, and I, I'm a massive manco fan myself, Manchester's got some great energy, some great bars, yeah. great pubs, great venues, wonderful uh, array of, of, of friendly people, restaurants, shops, music venues. So why not Manchester, which is a quarter of the price at King's Cross, surely? I, 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 th- I think that's true. I think it's a fair point. I mean, I'm, I don't know Manchester well. It's certainly not as connected internationally as London is. And I think that that's a factor for a lot of people. But I, I think Manchester is probably one where you could credibly consider as, a, as an alternative to London. Yeah, yeah. So in, in terms of some of the companies that you have, somewhere like Stevenage, what would be the rationale for them going there? Well, Stevenage's history is, of course, that it's the GSK site. And so there's a lot of local expertise in that area. And there's a lot of local support for the life science community because it's such a critical part of, of of the local county council. And so they're reasonably familiar with sort of how the industry works around there. Mm. It's also, you know, almost exactly in the middle of Cambridge and London. So it's quite well located for scientists coming from either side. But it's not someone that typically has that that energy and culture. No, when, you, when you think of... It's not. It's not maybe I'm doing Stevenage a disservice. I'm sure we'll have people messaging me, telling me what a what a evil human being I am. But I, I, I think that that's the criticism that get that gets thrown at it fairly or not. You know, it's not, you know, Stevenage might be a nice place to live, but it's not a, a vibrant international city in the way that London or Manchester is or Boston or San Francisco. Mm. And what I'm interested in understanding from you is the sorts of places that companies that you back are interested in. So if we're talking about companies like Quell, companies like Autolus, what is it that they want? So somebody listening to this that might be thinking about designing a space, ideally in King's Cross to keep Kaylee happy, but if it's not in King's Cross somewhere else... I'm all about secondary locations too. <laughs> there we go. Like like California. 
yeah. <laughs> San Francisco. <laughs> uh, well, San Diego as well. Let's not forget San Diego. Shout out San Diego. But uh, Alex Hamilton, I'm interested in what you and, and colleagues at Syncona would see. What would be your ideal? Yeah. So I, I think setup? I think there's a couple of things. The first thing would be an ability to scale the space, right? So you can say, okay, in first year, I'm only going to have 40 people. So I only want units to cover 40 people. I don't want to pay for space that covers 150. But next year, I expect to have 150 people. So I'd like to be able to get some sort of reservation mm. on expansion space. So you want people to keep space empty just in case you expand? Well, is that's sort of for them to think about, right? I think that, you know, we've seen this in some of our US sites, an ability to have an option to expand. There's a moon on a stick reference here that won't make any sense to people that aren't from England watching crap comedy tv 20 years ago but I'll, I'll, I'll save that for another time but i mean it's a fair point and, and obviously we've seen flexible space expand and explode massively since the pandemic for traditional offices mm. but i suppose the challenge alex is how feasible is it to provide that sort of space for the sorts of companies that Syncona invests in because they're doing quite different things some of these companies yeah i mean i it's definitely feasible because it happens in, in other places, right? Definitely it, it is competitive to try to get these things. And hmm. I think it's reasonable for landlords to have expirations on these kinds of reservations. But I think it's something that's eminently feasible. There's plenty of physical space, yeah. right? So it's about, you know, how much do you invest in the expansion space prior to actually using it? Yeah. And Kaylee, how can and should that work? What would be your advice to investors, developers that are potentially looking at coming in and solving some of Alex's problems? What could they be doing to solve those problems? And what are some of the structures that could work? I think looking at, say, per se, an office and stripping it back to a soft shell and core, looking to see if you take an existing building and if it fits to like a level two type lab and we can put labs in there. And what does that mean? Just in, in for planning, what, what's a level two lab? What does that mean? So it's anything but COVID, <laughs> which we learned drops a certain way. That was a big debate. Remember back in the day on um, which way it yeah. dropped. We didn't know if it was going to go level two or level three labs back in the so day. So that's the level of containment mm -hmm. basically. So those, so level one, two, three, four, et cetera, are essentially the hierarchies and of how much, how much protection do you need? So if I was, you know, if I was dealing with Ebola or, or anything like that, that would be level four. Presumably uh, level four, level five, Alex? I think it's level four. Um, I think so. I think so. Just, just going back to um, the, so the report that we published that both of you were involved with, Life Science Innovations, we had colleagues from the US Department of Homeland Security and now we had colleagues from the, the Center for Disease Control and they did talk in that report about one of the, the US government's facilities in, in the States. Mm. That was a very fascinating uh, conversation. I absolutely dig that report out. But they did talk in depth through all the different levels of, of biocontainment facilities that, that one requires. And in terms of, just, just continuing that point, sorry, Ken, I very rudely interrupted you. Um, but the, the short question is, what should people be building? Well, the majority of demand is actually level two. So if I see maybe 70 to 80% is level two and 30 to 20% or 20% to 30% is level three. Mm. So this is where the secondary locations come in for the level three that you can have certain types of research done at certain locations, certain yeah. science parks. And, and people then are going to want, I mean, would, I mean, it's a question we can ask people. And we, we had the, the two managing partners of Argent 
on propcast a few weeks ago so i will have them back we'll ask them this question but i suppose the obvious thing that that the average consumer would say is well do i want people undertaking dangerous research that that requires a bio three bio four level lab in the middle of a built-up area like king's cross surely that's a massive risk isn't it next yeah, well, to an international rail I, station and cat four is actually pretty rare cat four is sort of porting down kind of stuff right Chemical out in the middle stuff. of nowhere that that kind of thing that 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 is not commercial research i think really it's much more about good manufacturing practice facilities for these kinds of commercial products yeah some of which are you know technically biohazardous but they're not nasty infectious things floating around okay. they're things that, well, that you shouldn't expose yourself to unless you're on the receiving end of a therapeutic product yeah and that's a good response and i also think looking at retail spaces as we've seen those yeah. can be converted into level two type labs quite easily more than an actual office space really and how would you go about that there's not quite a lot of engineering that would need to be done in terms of extraction and floor ceiling heights are really great in those and then we look yeah. at drainage and stuff so that's really important and there's a ton of retail space so if i could have it in king's cross that'd be amazing <laughs> Well, there is a lot of retail space. Not not so much of it's that empty, though. Alex, it'd be really good to understand. Maybe we can talk about a couple of Sincona's portfolio companies and, and understand a little bit about what they do, but also about what the science looks like, what the space looks like, how they use it. Just describe some of that you know, for, for some of our listeners. Let's, let's start with Autolus. I mean, that, that's the company that, that, that some people will have heard of. They've been quite prominent, um, and, and they're one of the, the, the flag bearers for for Sincona, aren't they, really, and, and, and in UK's uh, amazing life sciences sector? So Autolus was founded in 2014. They're now in the final year of their pivotal trial for their lead asset. Mm. So hopefully 12 months from now, we should have a read on whether or not that is an approvable asset. And what will that lead asset be? It's, it's for a type of cancer called acute lymphoblastic leukemia, ALL, and specifically they're developing at the moment for adults, which is a significant unmet need. How many people does that potentially affect? Across the US and Europe, we think that there's probably a few thousand patients eligible for, for therapy each year. So these are last line patients who've been through, you know, one or two prior rounds of chemotherapy and other agents. Yeah. And they've they've run out of options. And so you 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 give them this therapy and we think that we can induce durable, complete responses in quite a substantial proportion of them. Wow, that's amazing. So what do they do then, day to day? What what are these chaps doing in their labs? And what do give their space is actually made up by research and by laboratory facilities versus just laptop space? I yeah, suppose. well, I, I I think it's important to point out that they're more than just labs. You know, they're running a clinical trial. They're building out their commercial capabilities yeah. in terms of a, a sales organization. Well. They're doing some manufacturing. In fact, I think at the moment they're looking at building a manufacturing facility in-house. Yeah. So there's a whole gamut of things that run all the way from the very visible and intuitive side of a science-based company to something that looks like pretty much like any other manufacturing company. It needs a facility where it makes stuff. It needs an educated and capable workforce to do those things on a day-to-day basis. So it's more complex than simply a few massive extractor banks and some Bunsen burdens like we had at school. Yeah, unfortunately, it's a lot more complex than that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, Kaylee, I mean, that is, I, I jest, but that is historically what the English people, <laughs> what, so what, I had, what I had at school. That is a lot of what people perceive lab space to be and it is a lot more complicated than that isn't it 
It definitely is. And especially when you introduce um, AI and deep tech and robotics into the mix. Synthase was one of those companies I worked with and put a robot into White City. Into so what their were they, to, to, to explain that a little bit more for people, what's the company? The company? Synthase. Synthase is the company. Uh, so I had the opportunity to work with them. To, they actually moved from King's Cross to White City a couple years ago, was it was? Yeah. Them and, Ga- and Gamma Delta at the same time. So two different companies, but it was quite interesting because they needed to put a robot into their labs. And was that was that why they moved to White City? No, there was no space available around the King's Cross area at the moment. I see. So, they- so White City is comparable. The distance from White City to King's Cross is comparable to from Kendall Square to Longwood Hospital almost the same exact time frame. So then they could get their head around it because most of my scientists don't want to go more than three stops on the tube. And is that true, Alex? Are the scientists really averse to go more than three stops on the tube? I don't know if it's quite as extreme as three stops, <laughs> but people don't like to commute. That's that's true. Well, especially not now that they've not had to for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Or Americans, we only walk 15 minutes and then we Uber. Yeah, nobody nobody walks in America. Well, you can't Uber anymore. There's no drivers left. So good luck, good luck with that. Get on, literally, get on your bike. Yeah. Get on your skateboard. Get on your scooter. roller skates or your scooter. Absolutely. So thinking about then that the importance of, of critical mass that seems to be the, the running theme in Kaylee and what you're saying, Alex, and what mm. you're saying as well. What should we then look at doing? So if we're thinking about the government's current mantra of leveling up. I don't expect you to get political or, or, or to fill in the gaps in any government policy area, but I'd be interested to understand what leveling up could mean. I'm, I'm interested to understand how we go about supporting that critical mass that your companies need to hire, to, mm. to drive innovation, to share ideas, and that you as an investor need to be able ultimately to park enough cash to keep returns coming in. Yeah. So I think the UK actually does pretty well today in terms of taking science out of various universities across the country. I think where we struggle is in building enough mass in one particular place to feel that there's a true biotech community. Um, you know, we've touched on White City and King's Cross and Stevenage. There's some in Cambridge, there's some in Oxford, but we don't have a self-sustaining ecosystem in the way that Boston does or in the way that San Francisco does. I mean, is that just a function of age? Because people cite Boston, they cite Kendall Square as the messiah of life science hubs, but that's been that way for, for 40 years and it's taken some time, hasn't it? And Kendall Square, which is that, that's that. I mean, that was a bit, a bit like King's Cross 20 years ago. It was a big desolate yeah, load of warehouses, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, f- 15 years ago, there was no such thing in, in Boston, right? And you're, you're right in that it sort of dates back to the early biotech companies, Genzyme and, and so forth, back in the 80s. And I think that what we need to do in the UK is we need to build those kinds of companies like Genzyme. And we need to keep them, and we need to keep them for a long time, based in the UK, doing their thing and building out a core of expertise with management teams and personnel who understand the industry and understand how it works. And then they can hire in the scientists from universities, from academia, and build new companies around that consistently. I think it is quite a long-term project. I think if we get more than one cluster, I think that would be a miracle. I think we do perfectly fine in terms of the university spin-out and local small startups. Mm. But it's really that next stage of creating internationally competitive businesses where I think there's work to do. Is, is it a bit chicken and egg, Kaylee Hagen, that Alex is, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, Alex can interject, but Alex is, is essentially laying it at the door of you guys. He's laying it at the door of the real estate sector. So, you know, if you build more space, we'll invest more money. We'll have many more 
internationally renowned companies. But I would say it's all the Americans' fault because all of the companies that we have that are fantastic, they whiz off on the plane to the NASDAQ and go and raise the money out there. So you're sucking up. You're taking all of our amazing scientists. I don't know if we're taking your amazing scientists. Maybe we're just looking for other opportunities that UK investors are missing. I'm I'm, I'm half joking. I don't don't think there's any issue with building a NASDAQ shareholder base, right? Look at GW Pharma. No. Very, very successful company out of Edinburgh with a NASDAQ shareholder base. The serious point I'm making, I suppose, is that there's a depth of capital out on the NASDAQ. And if I was smart enough to have one of these gene therapy businesses or, or whatever, I would think, well, where's going to be the easiest place for me to raise lots of money? And, and that yeah. is on the NASDAQ. Yeah, and and that's true. And I, I don't see that changing in the midterm. I do think that that doesn't necessitate that you need to move your headquarters and that's or a good point. the core of your operations or your labs. I think it's just the CEO and maybe a couple of other members of the C-suite need to spend quite a lot of time in the States keeping mm. their shareholders warm. Yeah. But I think now in 2020 and 2021, all shareholder meetings are virtual anyway. That's a good right? point. So is this really going to be a major issue? So in terms of squaring that circle, Kaylee Haig, what should that cluster look like? If we can only have one, and that is one area where you both agree, what does that then need to mean for King's Cross? Where should that be? Well, I think, obviously, King's Cross, but it needs to be also representation of the micro ecosystems that are emerging throughout the UK. I want them to have a foothold in there too as well, because it does us no good with a leveling up agenda if we can't draw them in and have them tap into the VC communities and tap into the talent and the resources that are here in London. So I would like to see some sort of dare I say, government initiative or something like that, where we dedicate a space where or a developer come through where they dedicate a space where the science have access to come in, do some research and come back out. So touch points. So then they get more exposure and present one front door. Mm. Is it workable, Alex? Because there's a huge variety of different life science businesses with with all sorts of different personalities and Mm. challenges and totally different areas of science and it's not a homogenous group is it it's not but I, I think it is feasible you know just to to extend the analogy with the u.s right in it might be that the venture capital community is based in boston and and you build a company in boston but that doesn't mean that the idea doesn't originate in chicago yeah or you know somewhere else so it's just about where is the executive expertise and where is the company building expertise as opposed to the location of the science because the science can be performed in the founder's lab in his university in you know wherever it is and then you might recruit people out of his lab into the business in a different city Mm. if that's how you want to build the business so i don't think that that's necessarily an, an issue i think what it needs to avoid is it needs to avoid becoming an exercise in navel gazing whereby you don't look beyond the walls of that particular cluster. All that you do is you exploit the fact that there's capability within that cluster to go out and find things and create new things. Mm, mm. And just on this point of clustering, we haven't talked about Oxford and Cambridge. We'll have that certainly more in focus on future episodes of this life science series. But what's your view on the arc? Be, be odd not to ask you that, because that is largely mm. seen as, as the UK's hub, as essentially a triangle of major cities and major academic yeah. centers. Yeah, so so it's indisputably good science and an excellent opportunity to to start building some of that mass. I do worry that it's a little bit too far away from international links. 
if you land in Boston Logan Airport, you can be in the center of town in 20 minutes in the back of a taxi. Yeah. And then you're standing outside the labs or the office space of 20 different biotechs. If you fly into Heathrow, how long is it going to take you to get to the Ark? You're probably more than an hour. And so is that a feasible day trip in the same way that it is to go transatlantic to Boston and then fly back? Perhaps and that might be a point, but I, I, I guess we're not talking about going on a shopping trip. We're talking about, in, in this arena, uh, many considered periods of research where you're going to meet lots of people and, and undertake a lot of research. So I, I, I totally see where you're coming from, but I, I just wonder whether that's booted out as a little bit of an excuse. And I see if you're going to do a day trip somewhere that you you know you want to be able to get on a train and come home and be back in time for EastEnders perhaps. But if you're going on a transatlantic trip, uh, another couple of hours or a train journey at one end, does that make a huge difference? Maybe it does. Maybe. It, it, sort of, it sort of depends upon what's at the end of it, right? Is there enough mass to make that trip worthwhile? Yeah, okay. I've done trips to Boston that are less than 24 hours. Sometimes mm. that's just how it is. Particularly when I was an investment banker, right? When you're an investment banker, you want to be able to to do something like that and then go see five to 10 people on yeah. the same trip yeah. rather than just spend it all on going to see one person. If you're spending £100 on a train ticket to get from Heathrow up to the Ark as a banker, you probably better go see more than one company. Yeah, and that, that's fair. So what, Kaylee, can we learn then from the States? What can we learn from some of the fast-growing life science hubs like San Diego, which obviously isn't anywhere near as big as Boston, but has been growing quite substantially over recent years. Uh, this is my biggest frustration when you guys try to compare the two worlds because they're not comparable. I mean, each ecos or each different life science hub is unique in itself. So, I mean, what we can do is follow the trends that come out of that, and especially the trends that are coming out of the tech world, where we see more urbanization and more clustering, and where the talent pool is going. That's what we need to really look at. Granted, there's so many science parks, but do we need that many? Mm. So, I mean, just before we end up, then, what, what's your view on what is your view on science parks? I think my frustration is that everybody wants to have the name or the association with science parks, just like they want to have in the real estate world the association with life sciences, and they don't clearly understand it. A lot of these people, majority of them, don't understand. And out of respect to the scientists there, we need to do a better job of clustering them and building them up. Do we need as many science parks? No, we're doing them a disservice. We should probably put them into smaller locations, key locations, and make more of a hub for them. Mm. And... From your perspective, what's your view on science parks? Are you, you pro, against? I'm happy for them to exist. I don't think that they necessarily provide the market that we're trying to develop, right? Mm. I think what they're very good for is building small companies of 5 to 20 people, but that's not an internationally competitive business. And you know, building a science company is a lot more than just hiring a, a bunch of scientists with some pipettes. You know, there's a whole infrastructural organization around it that actually, you know, isn't scientific at all. It's HR, it's legal, it's, yeah. it, you know, it's, it, it's, it's management functions. Well, it's that like ecosystem. Yeah, yeah exactly. It, it's, you know, it's a real business that has multiple functions within it. It's not just a lab. Mm. And I think the science parks are too lab focused. Uh, that, that's a fair point. So just, I mean, just to finish off then, what can we expect from the life sciences space in 2022? Obviously, hopefully... Hopefully now we'll be coming out of this pandemic, but having learned quite a lot, life sciences is now on the front page of many newspapers, even now every single day. 
So in some respects, it's it's obviously terrible what's happened. But on the, one of the plus sides is that people are perhaps more aware of, of what some of your companies do. What are you looking for as investors over the next 12, 24 months? Yeah, so so I'll, I'll, I'll leave Kelly to make predictions about what will actually happen, but I can, I can say what I'd like to happen. I'd like there to be more scale-up space, right? So for the 20 to 200 person sort of scaling, mm. right? I'd like there to be more landlords who have a better understanding of the market, right? I think a, a big problem with existing landlords in the UK is they mostly service profitable businesses and biotech businesses are hideously unprofitable. And so when they, when they look at the statements and they think, okay, what, what, how do I feel about essentially extending credit to this biotech company, they tend to feel pretty bad about it. And so I think a much greater familiarity with the model and the knowledge that if this company goes under, a new one will just take its place on broadly very similar terms to the existing lease. I think just a degree of familiarity amongst the whole community, I think would be very, very helpful. Mm. Good points, Alex. Thank you. Kaylee. predictions then? So I think what's going to happen in the next year to come is there's going to be some shakeup within the market. I think a lot of the properties are overpriced right now, overinflated. There's a buyer frenzy and there's miseducation on actual life sciences, like you said, on the buildings itself. So I feel like there's going to be a shakeup and people are going to have to get real about what life science is and who's going to come in there. And I think I'm looking forward to see when that actually happens and then we can move past it so then we can actually get to the real thing and and actually build science buildings in the right locations and move past this because right now it's just too expensive to buy in and who are we going to pass the cost on to? We'll have to leave it there and, and hopefully that question will be answered by many, many people in the real estate space over the next 12 months. But thank you very much to Katie Haig, founder of Science Code, Alex Hamilton, partner at Syncona. Thank you very much for listening. This is the first in our Life Science series. We'll be having some more guests on to possibly make the case against King's Cross, possibly. Let's see. Maybe they'll, maybe they'll come out against King's Cross, pro-Manchester, pro-Glasgow. Let's see. But thanks again to our guests today. And, and you can hear and read more of their views in, in the Life Sciences Innovation Report uh, that we published. Selfish plug there for our report earlier in the year with Savills and Perkins and Will. But thanks a lot to Alex and Katie. And we'll see you again soon. Bye-bye.